Our scripture today is from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, And whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Glenn McDowell, associate pastor. And I uh, also am pastor of New Church Development. Um, much of my time is spent coaching pastors who are starting new churches in Philadelphia, Delaware, South Jersey. It's been a good while since I preached here. So Scott Crosby takes off for the weekend and he gives me the sermon on money. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't attend church regularly, as you might imagine, or maybe contrary to what you uh, have seen from TV preachers, Talking about money is not most preachers' favorite topic. Uh, But I'm fine with this topic. Uh, Connie and I have learned some amazing things about God has called us to invest money and time. And hopefully you'll be okay with this topic by the time I finish. So here's today's message in a nutshell. Knowing Jesus' call on our lives will lead to radically different lives. Knowing Jesus' call... It'll lead to radically different ways that we live with our careers, with our time, and with our money. After Steve Jobs was diagnosed with terminal cancer, he spoke at commencement at Stanford saying, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Almost everything all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. 
it took terminal illness terminal illness for Steve Jobs to face what is truly important. What will it take to bring you to look at your unique calling? I want you to turn to the person next to you uh, in a minute, and uh, if that person is taken, grab somebody, grab another person, and ask them to tell you what is truly important, what is your purpose or your calling in life, and then switch and you tell them what your calling in life is. So try to do this just one or two sentences, and then after a few minutes, I'm going to stop you, and uh, we'll resume. So grab the person next to you, or if that person's gone, go get another person, and ask them what the most important thing is in your life. Okay. I hate to interrupt you. Uh, Pick up this conversation, finish this conversation with your partner over lunch today. At Liberty, we're going through a learning series both Sunday mornings and in our home meetings on relationships, the difference Jesus makes for relationships. Today, we're looking at how our calling And our investment in time and money impacts not only relationships, but all we do. So I'm not going to directly address relationships most of this message. Because as you'll see, our calling, our calling impacts all we do. And especially our relationships. We're going to look at a letter from St. Paul to Christians in southern Greece, Corinth. Where he describes something remarkable about Christians in northern Greece, Macedonia. This is interesting given the recent financial crises in Greece and the real financial hardships that some Greeks are experiencing today. The context is a tragic situation in Jerusalem in the mid-first century A.D. Very soon after it was reported that Jesus rose from the dead and we're told he appeared to more than 500 witnesses, large numbers of Jewish people in Jerusalem became followers of Jesus. And despite the fact that many of the synagogue leaders also became Jesus' followers, these first Christians started suffering major persecution. Typically, they soon lost their jobs, they were ostracized from the synagogues and from mainstream society, and as a result, they suffered abject poverty. The traditional financial and job networking supports were gone because Christians were considered outcasts, even to their extended family. So it's not surprising that a basic ethos of this new movement was a lifestyle of Christians sharing their resources, those who had with those who did not have basic necessities. The record in the book of Acts tells us something amazing. They shared everything they had, it says. And as a result, it says, there were no needy persons among them, no needy persons. This is a description of the early church in Jerusalem. Now, fast forward two decades later when this letter was written. 
2 Corinthians. The situation for Christians who still remained in Jerusalem two decades later had worsened to the point where hunger and poverty was critical among believers there. Discrimination and intolerance had made it nearly impossible for Christians to hold a job in Jerusalem. And now we read this remarkable story about the church in northern Greece, Macedonia, a church of poor people also, much poorer, in fact, than the recipients of this Corinthian letter letter in southern Greece. So Sarah just read this for us. I'm going to reread it in a version called The Message uh, and try to feel the emotional impact of what Paul is saying from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there and saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians in Jerusalem. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. The other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. That's what prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention so that what was well begun could be finished up. And you do so well in so many things. You trust God, you're articulate, you're insightful, passionate. You love us. Now do your best in this relief offering too. I'm not trying to order you around against your will. But by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. You are familiar with the generosity and grace of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor that we might become rich. So here's what I think. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year and not let those good intentions grow stale. Your heart's been in the right place all, all along. You've got what it takes to finish it up, so go to it. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can't. The heart regulates the hands. So this isn't so others can take it easy while you sweat it out. No, you're shoulder to shoulder with them all the way. Your surplus matching their deficit, their, def- their surplus matching your deficit. And in the end, you come out even. As it is written, nothing left over to the one with the most, nothing lacking to the one with the least. This is the word of the Lord. That quote quote at the end, nothing left over to the one with the most, nothing lacking to the one with the least. Does anyone know uh, where that quote is from? Just uh, speak out. Or what it's about. Pardon? Manna, yes. It's uh, from Exodus and... They went out and gathered the manna that the Lord provided every morning. Uh, and some people gathered a lot. That was probably the, the healthy, the strong. Some people could barely gather any. They were, 
elderly people, infirm, disabled people, uh, and yet they all pooled it and shared it so that everyone had exactly what they needed. No one had too little, no one had too much. This is an amazing story that we read. Paul is very gently but powerfully reminding the Corinthians that they made a pledge of money the previous year, and they will be blessed to fulfill that pledge. To motivate them, he tells the story of the Macedonian churches, dirt-poor people who are begging for the privilege of giving money for people they'd never even met in Jerusalem. It's hard to get our heads, our hearts around this. It's so far, and at least it is to me. But there is an explanation. Paul says they gave themselves first to the Lord. He's saying that they understood and latched on to God's grace. This grace is described vividly in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Uh, I don't know if, uh, one, uh, Katrina, if you could put that up uh, so that we can read again verse 9. There it is. Uh, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When the Macedonians understood what Jesus did, and his call on their lives, they started doing things that just amazed the world. Jesus' grace became surprising grace through them. And when you and I understand what Jesus did and his call on our lives, we will start doing things that will amaze the world. So I'm going to break this down. The first point is Jesus invested his life for us. This was his calling. Jesus invested his life for us. So to understand the dynamic of this verse, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, let's start with the fact that Jesus was rich. Is this an example of Paul using British understatement? I mean, Jesus rich? He's eternal God. He's always been rich in his glorious character, infinitely good, eternal, all-powerful, creator of the universe, of the galaxies, the solar system, All the earth's ecosystems, creator of mankind, with our nobility, our cunning, our heroism, our determination, artistry, passion, mystery. Jesus made and owned all things and is Lord over history. Fort Knox, full of gold bars, is nothing to him. He created all the deposits of precious metals and diamonds on the earth. For all that we can conceive wealth to be, Jesus was rich because he was God himself. But, it says, Jesus became poor. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. Jesus gave up all the power, the privilege of deity, becoming fully human, starting as the unborn child of pregnant Mary. We know that as an itinerant preacher, teacher, he probably owned nothing more than the clothes on his back. But his true poverty was not his lack of possessions. His true poverty... His ultimate poverty was his willingness to give up his health, his breath, his very life, and die. Jesus died a horrible, humiliating death purposely. I lay down my life for my sheep, he had foretold. Why? Because Jesus cared about humankind, whom he had created, but which had lost its way and was on a path of destroying others, themselves, and even God's good earth. Now, we generally put people in two categories. They're 
There's, there are some bad people out there, but usually that's other people. And then there are people like us, people like us who are certainly better than those other people out there. And the others need God. They need Jesus to make them right. We're actually pretty good, thank you. We can make it on our own. But Jesus shows us that it is actually our goodness and all our hard work that separates us from God just as much as the bad record of people alienates them from God. It's actually our goodness and our hard work that separates us also from God. Why? In either case, we are thinking, God, I don't need you and I don't need your ways. I can make life work on my terms. And so we have all gone our own way, seeking to live our lives independent of the Father who made us. And we have a pr- tremendous problem in our standing before God. The cross was God's way of making us right. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor on the cross, poor on the cross, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So the first point is, Jesus, though rich, became poor for us. Jesus calling was to invest his life for us. Second point, his poverty makes us rich. The result of Jesus' poverty on the cross is that we are made rich. That's realized and applied by the Lord calling us. We are given a rich, wealthy calling. He calls us in two ways. First, he calls us into his family, and then he also gives us an individualized, personal calling. First, he calls us by adopting us into his family. We are already his children by creation, and trusting in Christ, we are doubly his children. In theology, this is called effectual calling. This calling gives us vast riches. First, freedom from condemnation and guilt. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our guilt against us. So freedom from guilt, and then freedom from power of the old ways. Free from the power of the ruts of selfishness, independence, habits, addictions. In Christ, we are a new creation, free from the old powers over us. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us. But equally as important as forgiveness, he gives us a goodness or a virtue that is not our own. He assigns to us the goodness and perfect life of Jesus as if we had earned it. So in 2 Corinthians, a few chapters earlier, chapter 5, Paul says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become. God actually considers us now to have the righteousness of Jesus. So that foreign goodness of Jesus is laid on us and he becomes ours. So we're now free from the burden of establishing our worthiness. We don't have to become worthy. We are worthy. And we don't have to try to establish a purpose for our lives ourselves. God calls us into a purpose. So first we're called into his family. And then the second part of our calling is that that we're given an individualized particular calling. As a result... We are free to gladly serve God through our calling, through our time, and through our resources. In Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, there's an inquisitor 
who gives a terrifying account of what happens to the human soul when it doubts its purpose. Quote, The secret of man's being is to live for something definite. Without a firm notion of what he is living for, man will not accept life and will rather destroy himself than remain on earth. End quote. In Osgin's book, The Calling, he writes, Deep in our hearts, we all want to find and fulfill a purpose bigger than ourselves. Only such a larger purpose can inspire to heights we could never reach on our own. For each of us, our real purpose is personal and passionate. End quote. So why do so many of us feel disconnected from a purpose? Could it be that there's no calling unless there's a caller? The scripture speaks of God not only as creator, but also as the caller with a capital C. God's calling saves us from ourselves. What I mean is that apart from the caller, we're tempted either to a meaningless existentialism or a quest to have a purpose and make a difference in the world. In fact, that's one of our mantras of our culture, make a difference in the world. But apart from God, we're tempted to do that with no ultimate framework for what, what makes that quest meaningful. What meaning is there to keep the world green or advocate for the poor or even to love someone if our solar system will ultimately burn out and we are only highly evolved animals seeking to control our short-lived destiny? Are all our motives only survival methods? Jesus became poor on the cross that we might be called into a wealth of purpose, into a wealth of meaning. Because God is creator, redeemer, and the one who calls, and he calls us individually and purposely, you have a unique, purposeful calling. You have a reason to live and to live with passion. Okay, how do we know what that particular calling is? Our calling usually, but not always, flows out of our giftedness, what we are both good at and what we enjoy. We're gi- with what we're gifted, we're good at it, and we enjoy it. And so, know, know your passions, know yourself. God gifts and calls you to serve with what gets your juices flowing, what makes you feel alive. But at the same time, God does call us at times just to suffer in mysterious ways that don't make sense. Your calling begins with where God has you now, right now, in your relationships, your circumstances, and your opportunities. Faithfulness in small things leads to faithfulness in more opportunities. This means loving the people in your lives right now, even when it may feel like death. For some, God's call is in the small and mundane, cleaning up after somebody else when nobody notices, doing the routine, serving, maybe unnoticed, but serving by faith for God's glory. This is exactly the sweet spot of God's calling for some. For some people, God's call is in big things that change a neighborhood or a business or a city or change a media or fashion trend or change a nation or change history. Both equally honor God when done through faith, the big, the small, when done through faith and service to him. 
We maximize our calling when we can do what we most are skilled and gifted at for the greatest amount of time. I'll say that again. We maximize our calling when we can do what we are most skilled and gifted at for the greatest amount of time. But not everyone has that privilege, at least not all the time. Our patriarch Joseph, son of Jacob, was falsely accused by a woman and languished in an Egyptian prison for years. He was useless, it seemed, there in that prison. But then he was called to be the remarkable prime minister of Egypt and save the Egyptians and the children of Israel from a destructive famine. And he changed the course of history. Now here's a corrective about callings. We Christians have fallen into the fallacy of full-time Christian service as the premier calling, missionaries, pastors. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said that all callings, as long as they're not professions that are bad for society, that all callings are holy and of equal significance in God's economy. What makes them holy is that in our calling we serve by faith in Christ. Here's what Luther wrote. The works of monks and pastors, however holy and hardworking they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but all works are measured before God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework of a servant is often more acceptable to God than all the fastings and other works of the monk or pastor. End quote. This is because serving through Christ by faith is what God honors. Interestingly, as, as an aside, Luther writing on marriage in 1522 said, God and the angels smile when a man changes, changes a baby's diaper. <laughs> so, in summary, Jesus' poverty makes us rich by giving us a calling. First, a calling, a general calling into his family with a new identity in Christ, united in Christ. And secondly, he gives us an individualized particular calling. So here's a challenge for you today. Evaluate and articulate your particular calling, like I tried to get you to do a few minutes ago, as you shared. But try to articulate what your particular calling is, what's most important, what God has called you to do. Write it out. Get feedback from your leaders, from your peers on your gifts and strengths. Text a summary of your calling to a friend and get feedback. They might help you see your calling more clearly. They might, might even be bolder than you are thinking. Write it on a prayer list or a card. Bring it to the Lord regularly, asking him to empower you to do his calling. And then maybe you'll want to post it on your Facebook or Google Plus or LinkedIn profile. So here's a recap. Jesus was, was called to invest his life for us. His poverty makes us rich by giving us a wealthy calling. And then the final point, we are called to change the world. Because we are called and empowered by the Spirit, we can unreservedly and joyfully give our lives, 
our careers, our time and resources for his calling. And this will change the world. How? In three ways. By our vocation, our time, and our money. By the way, vocation and calling are the same thing. Synonyms, vocation, comes from the the Latin root for calling and calling from an English root. Know your calling. Start with where you are right now. How does God want to use you in your present situation? How does God want to use you to change things in that situation to reflect God's values? Or maybe how does God want to change you to live out the fruit of the Spirit in a hard, messy situation that's not changing? Maybe the situation's not going to change, but God wants to change you. Where does God want to take you in the future to enjoy him more deeply and to to bless others? Here's a warning. Service to God can be the enemy to intimacy with him. He calls us first into a deep, dependent relationship with the Father. For those of you who know the story, Mary's devotion trumped Martha's service. We started the service by telling our neighbor about our calling Do you need to reevaluate and restate your calling? Know your calling. Second, invest your time. Know your calling, invest your time. You have a unique calling and giftedness to spend time in a way different from others. Be guided, not by peer or cultural pressures, but by investing your time in your unique calling to enjoy God and to bless others. Are your impulses conquering you or are you ruling over them so that you invest time in what you are truly passionate about? What are the impediments for us at Liberty Fairmount trusting Jesus radically with our time? Could impediments be a small view of Jesus' role in the world? A small view of Jesus' role in my life? A small, limited worldview instead of seeing God's kingdom purposes ultimately bringing the renewal of all created things? Is it fear of social disapproval if you do not invest time in social media, the latest technology, hanging out, keeping up with the latest cultural icons, movies, TV, downloads, books, blogs? All these may be good, and for some, this is their calling. Yet for others, these may eat away time that could be invested to make a big difference in this world. Checking Facebook or tweeting an update may be the most strategic way for you you to fulfill your calling. Or it may not be strategic for the one important thing the Lord has for you to do today. Other impediments to kingdom time investment. Fear. Fear that you're not good enough, not spiritually qualified, not mature enough to take a bold stand for the kingdom at the workplace. Or not ready to serve as a home meeting leader or not good enough to mentor and disciple someone who is just trying to learn about Jesus or fear of making commitments in relationships or fear of launching out to help plant a church in a neighborhood needing gospel grace in Philly or in Pakistan or wherever in the world is it time to Evaluate your priorities, both for discretionary time and non-discretionary time. Should you change your habits for what you do daily, weekly, 
annually. Know your calling, invest your time, and then third, invest your resources. Money, money and possessions. We heard the story of the Macedonians generously, generously giving out of their poverty. What lesson is there for you today from the Macedonians? God's grace was grabbing hold of them in such a way that it moved their hearts that they wanted to give. All that we own is the Lord's, so it's not a question of what we set apart for him, but what of his should we spend on ourselves? A tithe. A tithe simply means 10%. Tithing, that is giving 10% to the Lord's work, with the local church being the priority, that's basic. That's taught in the Bible. Tithing is affirmed by Jesus, who then says, but do more than that. Live a life of mercy and justice, too. It's interesting. We face the danger of possessions becoming God or an idol to us as our income increases. Matthew 26, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you know that tithing becomes harder, not easier, as your income increases? The Social Capital Community Benchmark Survey shows that households with incomes below 20000 gave 4.6% to charity, a higher percentage than any other income group. Households earning between 50000 and 100000 donated 2.5% or less compared to 4.6% for the lower income group. Other studies reported in the Wall Street Journal and a different study by the Pew Charitable Trust's research, they confirm that in general, the higher one's income, the lower percentage Americans give to charity. There are exceptions, but that's, that's the trend. A study of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that lower income people are more generous, more charitable, trusting, and helpful to others than those with more wealth. They were more attuned to the needs of others. Do you know that it's a spiritual principle to spend what you have, not what you don't have? The final of the Ten Commandments is do not covet, which in plain English, do not covet means be content with what God has given you rather than desiring what he's not given you. So if this is a challenge for you, and credit cards are such a snare. Uh, think about the principle of coveting. What does it mean for you not to covet? We're going to offer a course here at Liberty Fairmont called the Compass Course. Dave and Kristen Schneider are going to teach that course. There's um, some information that's already gone out about it. Another email is going to go out. And if you're interested, uh, want to sign up for that course on just managing your money well for God's kingdom. That course is going to be offered this fall, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. So why might you fear to tithe or give even more than a tithe? Guys, I know that a lot of you are under financial pressure. Uh, And I care about you guys. I love you guys. I know that some of you are unemployed. Some of you are underemployed. And they're important goals that you have, education, maybe buying your first house. 
The Lord sees all this. He's not mechanistic in how he views us. On the one hand, he wants us to trust him to provide because it all comes from him. So tithing might actually always be appropriate. But on the other hand, it's interesting that at the end of our passage that we read in 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes this passage from Exodus about the manna when the people were in the wilderness gathering manna And it says, whoever gathered much, that is the strong and the healthy, had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little, that is the disabled and elderly, had no lack. Because they pooled and shared the the manna. There are times when the surplus of some people will balance the lack of others. An important principle in how we are family. It also makes a big difference just to come back. I need to keep coming back and remembering what my financial security is. It's not our possessions, not our assets. Our financial security, my financial security is the Lord. It's not things, it's him. So to get practical, evaluate what you're giving financially. What percentage of your gross income are you giving if you're salaried? Or if you own your business, figure out an equivalent basis. Are you giving 10%? Are you tithing? Can you tithe? Or should you give more than a tithe? In this letter to the Corinthian people, Paul suggests that, that they make a planned decision on an amount. Because they had made a pledge that they were going to give. And then he's saying follow through and do it thoughtfully with a commitment. He says make a planned decision rather than impulse giving. What's wrong with the impulse giving? There may be times when God does move us to give more and be generously, but the problem with impulse giving is that if we're going on impulse, money will often go first to other things, like impulse shopping. Connie and I have learned some remarkable things about money, time, priorities. When we were dinks, double income, no kids, Uh, We enjoyed traveling far and wide, including a six-week trip circling the entire globe. Then over time, we considered that when we took our marriage vows, part of what God intends and is including in that vow is not just companionship for each other, but faithfulness to seek to have and to raise children in order to advance God's gracious kingdom on earth. In fact, the instruction to bear and raise children is the first directive from God in the Bible. This realization changed our financial priorities. Since we were not able to have children biologically, we pursued adoption, and the Lord gave us two children, David, Alistair, and Shelby. Wow, suddenly all your priorities change. Over the years, we had invested in a few houses in the Grad Hospital area near South Street, Three of them we had renovated completely. But the Lord surprised us when our kids were ages 14 and 10. He led us to sell all five houses there and invest that money in an expensive international adoption. Two older children from Russia, Anya and Andre. And I tell you now, without a doubt, that children are far more valuable than all Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's portfolios combined. We are so thankful for each of our four children and thankful also for a bunch of nieces and nephews that we also care a lot about. 
much preferable to assets that will all perish someday. Connie and I have also found that giving away a minimum of 10% of our income for the Lord's work all of our married lives, as we've done that, God has never failed to more than provide for all our needs. I tell you this simply that you might be encouraged in your faith. To recap, invest your money for God's kingdom. Remember the underprivileged but surprising generous Macedonians. Has God's grace also grabbed hold of you so that you're over, you are overwhelmed by his goodness to you and so moved that you can't wait to give to others? Here's a summary. Jesus invested his life for us. Through his poverty, we become wealthy. And our greatest wealth is our calling through which we will change the world by our vocations, by our time, and by our money. Knowing Jesus' call on our lives will lead us to radically different lives. As a result of, of investing our lives for Jesus by his power, we Liberty Fairmont could have a huge impact on the world because calling is not just an individual calling. We're also called corporately. There's a corporate calling to us here, Liberty Fairmount. God is already doing tremendous things through us. The Easter offering, not just this year, but year after year. And even more than that, just the relationships that we have, what we're doing through our work, through our jobs, through our callings. We can have an even greater impact for justice, for kingdom values in business, in politics, education, the arts, social services. We can address worldwide issues of poverty as we're already doing in South Sudan, bringing economic prosperity. We can fight for justice where there is slavery and the billion-dollar sex and pornography business. We can pursue healing from racial alienation in our city and in our nation. We can model families that are often led by godly husbands and fathers, but not by rounding up the wagons and keeping a safe distance from the rest of society. Rather, we can foster healthy families who at the same time connect with and love non-traditional families and those of dysfunctional families and those who are alienated and disconnected from any family ties. God has us in a very strategic place here in Philadelphia. We can serve as a bridge, a bridge and communication link between urban professionals, artists, teachers, and longtime North Philly residents. A bridge between a historic secular school, a block to the west of here, Girard College, and a historic Jesuit Roman Catholic school, St. Joe's Prep, one block that way to our east. A bridge between conservative Presbyterians and Christians of a large variety of denominations, traditions, and political persuasions. A bridge between people of profound Christian faith and a postmodern generation that is skeptical of anyone who speaks speaks of truth with a capital T. It took terminal illness for Steve Jobs to face what is truly important. What will it take for you personally and for us corporately to passionately give It all to the Lord for his unique calling. A blogger by the name of Dave McCarty says this. The Jesus in Christians is boring to others because he makes such a little difference in our lives instead of a wow difference in our lives. 
We're just about as circumstance-dependent for our joy and peace as the pre-believers around us. It's not just the pre-believers who yawn, but the angels in heaven too, methinks. McCarty thinks that too few of us passionately live our calling and invest our time and money in total dependency on Jesus. And then McCarty says, quote, Nobody is saying, wow, surely God is with you and there is no other, there is no other God, quoting Isaiah 45. Let's pray that the Lord will pour out his spirit in our day and make a wow difference in us, a difference that causes pre-believers and the angels to be floored and to give glory to Jesus for such a difference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've called us as your children. We thank you that you've called us to significance. Thank you that you've called us to make a difference in this world and to point people to you and your kingdom. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.